Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Yo Gosh Oh Golly Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we are covering Excalibur number 57, For Whom the Bell Trolls, in which Fum, Pop, Fay, Flop, Flem, and Fow kidnap Tom Jones's mom. Also, Jubilee and Gambit are mean to Nightcrawler, and I will never for <laughs> it. Excalibur number 57 was originally published in November 1992, and the creative team is Alan Davis and Scott Lobdell on writing, Joe Matarera on pencils, Joseph Rubenstein on inks, Kevin Tinsley on colors, Ken Lopez on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. Once upon a time when the world was filled with wonder, little creatures shared the earth with humans, and magic was a way of life. Once Upon a Time is now. Empire Pictures presents Troll. The weirdest, the rowdiest, the most mischievous, and the scariest little creature of them all. Welcome back to week 61, I believe, of podcasting about Excalibur, but don't cry for us. This is a heavy burden that was freely chosen. We're going to have lots of fun this week talking trolls and team dynamics with a fabulous guest who I will introduce in a moment. But first, your usual troll associates. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk and sometimes teach about gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture in academic places and at various homes around the internet like ComicsXF and Middle Spaces and Shelf Dust. I remain Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager manager and I'm feeling for him in this issue rough issue emotionally for for Nightcrawler in this one but before we can get to Nightcrawler's very real fictional emotions we need to get through these introductions so I am joined as always by Mav reintroduce yourself to our lovely listeners you know to live for today and to love for tomorrow is the wisdom of a fool because tomorrow is promised to no one you see love is this, that wonderful thing that the whole wide world needs plenty of. And if you think for one minute that you can live without it, you are not only fooling yourself. Listen, please. I'd like to tell you something that happened to me just the other day. I'm not going to get re- the entire song. <laughs> I'm just saying it's not unusual to be loved by anyone. <laughs> Props to anybody who got that before I said it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure somebody did. <laughs> Hi, I'm, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and uh, I'm doing okay today. T- today was my f- last day of class teaching at one of my three teaching jobs. <laughs> so, so, like my my life just got you know easier today. I, you know, I, I, I'm going to miss my students there, but you know, I did get to play uh, Kahoot. Uh, my students made a quiz for uh, a Kahoot quiz for their um, for one of their final projects, and I came in third, and I'm ecstatic because that's the best I've ever done. Whenever I've <laughs> In, in a Kahoot quiz, so I don't know if, you know, if no one's ever played Kahoot, this is like this is like the highlight of my day. I'm, I'm like really super excited about that. And other than that, you know, I study pop culture, I comics, movies, film. I, on this show and another podcast called Box Popcast, you know, I teach at three universities. I don't know. I'm talking about the stuff that actually excites me, which is you know that it's not unusual to be loved by anyone. <laughs> I really thought you were going to turn it around and say the stuff that actually excites me, like this issue of Excalibur, and now I'm disappointed. Oh, it, I mean, it, it's fine. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Andrew, reacquaint us with your pursuits. 
Hello, I'm Dr. J. Andrew DeMann, a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and project lead for the Claremont Run, a big micro-publishing project on Chris Claremont that uses Twitter, which of course means that I, on occasion, interact with trolls, <laughs> then usually results in me whining to Anna and Mav, and thus, ironically, I am perfectly suited to talk trolls with Anna and Mav, and an honored guest that I'm very excited about for this issue. <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering how many of us would do troll-related puns. Uh, we are joined. I, I, I went with a obscure, not Tom Jones, but Tom Jones thing. So, like, you know, <laughs> I, I, like seriously, if you got the joke, write in. I really want to know if they know what I did. I was right. We are joined this week by a fabulous fellow podcaster and writer and all-around X-Men aficionado in Austin Gordon. Welcome, Austin. Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We are so thrilled to have you, and I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Austin Gordon has been reviewing every issue of every X book in publication order, one issue at a time, <laughs> since 2009 on his website, The Real Gentleman of Leisure. He's currently about to start in on 1997. He has also written for sites like Comics XF and Comic Book Herald, and has a piece coming out soon with Shelf Dust. He also co-hosts the podcast, a very special episode, which discusses very special episodes across the history of television. Now, Austin... I'm pretty sure you're a lifelong comics fan, but hit us with the origin story. When did you first fall in love with comics and what got you hooked? So I, uh, I've i been reading comics since 1992, so most of my life at this point. Um, I came to comics from trading cards, actually. Oh. Um, as a kid, I was a big baseball fan, and that meant I collected baseball cards. And then in fifth grade, a kid at school introduced me to the Marvel Universe Series 2 trading cards. And I was familiar with comic book characters at that point. I'd watched Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends and DC Super Friends and you know the 89 Batman movie and all that. So, so superheroes were in, in my personal zeitgeist even though i wasn't reading comic books but this sort of fusion of baseball cards and comic book characters one out on the side of of comic book characters and so that led me to comic books and the first comic book that i picked up that started the habit aside from a few you know random ones here and there was x-men volume 2 number 8 the bishop gets introduced to the x-men mm -hmm. rogue gets hit with a boysenberry pie Gambit's <laughs> crazy ex-wife shows up at the very end and they all go off to fight uh, to fight the brood in the catacombs of new orleans because new orleans mm -hmm. is a city famous for its deep catacombs mm -hmm. running underground mm -hmm. makes total sense <laughs> been there and, yeah <laughs> and then that was that was it i um that got me into comics and the x-men and i ran with it from there and i have not stopped since so tell me a little bit about your affection for x-men in particular i mean what draws you to this universe and what made you want to start writing about that universe well the immediate allure of x-men when i picked up that issue x-men number eight the bulk of the story is all character interactions it's bishop meaning the the blue team at the time and he has like a little blurb for each person as he meets them from his historical record and that fascinated me as a kid he refers to jubilee as the last x-man and then they go to the lake and they have a party and or yeah. like, a, like a little barbecue and everyone hangs out and Cyclops is like awkwardly attracted to Psylocke in a weird subplot that never really goes anywhere. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then they have the whole boysenberry pie. And so it's just, it was like these characters who were like a friends and a family hanging out and the juxtaposition of that against what I knew from comic book superheroes, the punching and the fighting and all of that attracted me. It was this something that I wasn't really expecting that you didn't get from the cartoons. And then as I just stuck with that in the X-Men and I discovered this huge backstory of lore and continuity, and it became like a, like a history project, figuring out all of these references and all of this history. And the deeper that I got into it, the more I wanted to learn. And back then, I mean, it was hard to find something, you know, if you couldn't afford, you know, a given back issue because it was the first time Jim Lee drew the X-Men or something. I mean, there's no other way to read that issue for a long time. And so trying to piece it all together became kind of this quest. And that just hooked me, hooked me even more at that point. And then writing about it, I've been a writer for a long time. I went 
to school for writing, uh, mostly wrote fiction, written a few novels, nothing's been published, the usual story there. But fiction writing was was how I got my start in writing. And then in like 2007, which was sort of the height of the comics blogosphere heyday, um, I was you know, reading all of these comic blogs and I thought, well, hell I can do that. And uh, (laughs) it would be a good, it would be a good writing exercise, you know, a way to get me to write something new on a schedule regularly. And so I started um, a blog, the gentleman of leisure and with a friend of mine, and we just kind of goofed around and did some weird stuff. And then I finally hit on this idea of, well, I love the X-Men and comics. And this is this sort of weird comic blog thing. I'm just going to start reviewing every issue of x-men and it just sort of ballooned from there (laughs) (laughs) and now and now i'm pock committed (laughs) well can i ask you what's that experience been kind of like because we're obviously interested in that you know we're all engaged in the process of revisiting these things that we loved at earlier times in our lives and bringing a new critical eye to it is there anything that's sort of surprised you or anything that you feel like you've learned by by doing this reviewing every x-men comic project yeah it's it has it's definitely been an experience i've learned when i first started off i thought i'm just gonna do x-men uncanny Mm x-men and i didn't do like silver age guest appearances or anything like that but then my resolve faltered because i'm entirely too much of a completionist (laughs) Mm -hmm. about that and so by the time new mutants rolled around it was like no i have to do new mutants and i have to do x factor and then once you've once you've opened that door then it's like okay i gotta do everything I go back and read some of that earlier stuff. I've learned a lot about my style and how much that my early writing was very much in that tradition of the semi-snarky comics blog attitude of the late 2000s, early 2010s. (laughs) I would love to go back and revise some of those early reviews to bring a little bit more of the quasi-academic voice that I've brought to it. But overall, I've learned that the narrative tapestry is what I really like about the X-Men at this point. That that I, I review each issue as a singular unit and it succeeds and it fails on its own merits. But what I'm really interested in is how that contributes to the sort of overall narrative that that this is in my in my opinion this is a story that started in publication date September 1963 and has continued a month at a time since then and each issue is another chapter in that story and I'm fascinated by the ways that deviates from that narrative that it builds up that narrative that it succeeds that it fails in that regards. And that's really the thing that I keep coming back to. And the thing that keeps me going, even when I'm mired in the mid nineties mediocrity, like I am right now (laughs) of X-Man and Howard Mackey's X factor and all of this stuff that on a micro issue to issue level is not very good, but at least is contributing in some small way to this sort of grand narrative that's unfolding. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about identities between various X-Men teams during that era, which is obviously a theme of today's issue as well. But we'll do our issue summary first, and then we'll come back to that with some first impressions of the particular issues. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd never make you bring up the rear while troll hunting. But as always, let's start today's reunion with a plot summary. Excalibur number 57 opens in the shadow of Big Ben, the clock not the horse, where Tom Jones, a mutant otherwise known as Alchemy, is making a desperate phone call. He manages to leave a message on the answering machine at Xavier's school about trolls kidnapping his mother before an angry, trollish presence forces him to hang up. Meanwhile, the members of Excalibur are exploring the sewer, trying to find the entrance to Vixen's underground base. They run in the direction of a scream and find two policemen transformed into gold. Megan catches a whiff of the attacker's scent on the air and the team sets off in pursuit, quickly running into a pack of very large trolls. A fight ensues, amid which Brian gets turned into gold. The trolls retreat as Excalibur are joined by more policemen who inform them the trouble started with two troll statues being stolen from Hyde Park. Attentive readers will remember this happened back in X-Factor number 41 and 42, featuring the debut of Alchemy. Kurt sends Cerise to find Farron, believing his magical skills might be of use with trolls and alchemy in play. Meanwhile, we touch base with a familiar Blackbird jet soaring over the Atlantic Ocean. On board are Cyclops, Psylocke, Beast, Wolverine, Rogue, Jubilee, and Gambit. They remind us of the plot of X-Factor number 41 and 42 while exploring Tom Jones's smashed up house 
house, then follow Wolverine's nose into a hidden passage beneath London Bridge. From there, we return our attention to Excalibur, who are still dashing through the sewers in search of the trolls. Suddenly, Megan recoils in pain, a delayed reaction to getting touched by alchemy earlier. A distraught Kurt watches her transform into gold. With determination, he rushes ahead of the team and runs straight into the X-Men, who explain the broad strokes of the situation. The teams team up to follow Psylocke's psychic senses toward the trolls. The combined teams quickly find a giant wooden door blocking their way, which is easily dealt with by Kitty and Beast. But once that door is open, they find another one, made of a different, indeterminate material. Logan knows he knows the scent, but can't quite place it. As Gambit throws a kinetically charged playing card at the door, Logan remembers the scent is plastic explosive. There's a big fiery splash page, and we'll have to wait till next week to see what comes out of that explosion. So for now, we will do first impressions of this issue, starting with our honored guest. Austin, how are you feeling coming into this issue of Excalibur? What immediately jumps out at you about this one? Uh, so two, well, like two and a half things. Uh, Joe Mad, <laughs> the artwork is is the big thing. This is yeah. this is his debut on on an X book, so to speak. He'd done some Marvel Comics Presents stuff mm-hmm. um, prior to this, but this was kind of his introduction to the to the X books. And then it, I, I had forgotten just how much this is like the exact same plot as the first alchemy story in X Factor yes, forty one yes. and forty two. Mm-hmm. Like it's the same trolls. They kidnap his mom. They force him to turn things into gold. It's it's, it's like beat for beat the mm-hmm. exact same plot. And so that's that's the thing that stuck out. And just the return of alchemy and those trolls and how sort of random that is. Yeah, yeah. I, I read the X Factor issues and prep for this and like even some of the imagery. It's actually going to happen in the next issue, but of everybody being chained up and everything. It's just sort of a copy of that, which relates to Joe Mad's arts and Art Adams is a big influence. And Art Adams was the artist on the yeah. X Factor issues, which is right, interesting. Right. Must have been kind of a dream project for him. <laughs> well, how are the two of you feeling about this one, Andrew and Mav? Are you coming in with positive emotions, negative emotions? How are you feeling, Andrew? I'm good. I really like this issue, exactly as Austin said. Um, Joe Mad's work is spectacular, um, and I think it's especially well-suited to Excalibur. Um, I do have a continuity complaint that, that made me really angry. Uh, like we complain about how, you know, you, sh- you need to do your homework and know the character beats and all that kind of stuff. The, the opening scene has Kitty in a sewer. Um, she's a survivor of the mutant massacre. And Brian looks at her and says something to the effect of you should never have left the X-Men well in a sewer. And you know what I mean? Like, oh, this is still a union yeah. issue. They should connect to that to some degree. Oh, like, I, that's want, true. I, I want those emotions in play mm-hmm. if we're going to set up the reunion. That is an absolute slam dunk opportunity, oh. uh, and the the writers missed it, and that made me really sad. Oh God, that's true. That's gonna really bother me now. I almost wish I hadn't thought of that, Andrew. Your critical oh, eye is ruining this comic for me. I gotta say, yeah, I did I not. I did not pick up on that when I reviewed it. That's there's a. Uh, a continuity moment later on that I that I like, but I missed that one, and that is a huge swing and a miss to yeah. call attention to that. Oof. How are you feeling about this one, Mav? What's new, Pussycat? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, I like this issue, too. Many of the same reasons. Um, I, To be fair, I also did not pick up on the fact that, oh, my God, this is the first time they've been in a sewer since Mutant Massacre. Or is that the first time? They have been, but, like, yeah, that is – it should have been called back on because uh, Kurt was there, too. That's where they both got hurt. I like this. I am a big fan of Joe Mad. Um, I like his artwork. Um, I also did pick up on the, wow, as much as he really wants to be Art Adams, he really wants to be Art Adams in this book. Like, it, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. like the, you know, down to the drawing of the dinosaur, like it's like, oh well, yeah, this, yeah. This, this very much looks like this is a dream project, but I like this book. I do think um, there's critical things that I, I would nitpick with the fact that Cyclops just punks out Kurt like just completely. It's just <laughs> yeah. like, uh. granted, that's also that is Scott's character. Not so much in the old days, but that's what Scott's character had become by the nineties. Was like it's the animated series version in this issue. Yeah, sure. it really is. Yeah. yeah, it 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 you know that that is who he is. He's like yeah, I'm showing up and I'm in charge now. He's Captain America in of them. Like that's what he's doing. He's like decided. Hi, I'm the real leader, Kurt. I haven't seen you in years but i'm on but but i'm here now so i'm taking over so things like that made me go oh that's that's kind of almost creepy but as a as a standalone story i liked it i think it was fun it was a little too much x-men and too little excalibur but it was fun and and it was neat 
seeing Kitty and Kurt just get to hug people, you know, like we, yeah. we've talked yeah. about that before. Like we, you know, on our on our previous, we we talked about when they finally do admit that the X Men are alive, and then they we, we get robbed of them getting to see each other for the first time. Well, we're doing that here. It's like two years too late, but it's still look kitty is hugging rogue and then she hugs wolverine and yeah, that's neat you know? yeah that was the, those are the two moments that i really liked this is the first time that kitty and wolverine have like interacted with each other since the fantastic four versus the x-men miniseries right mm-hmm. when when she was dying and dr doom helped save her and, and then i love yeah and she exactly and franklin richards like talks her, the whole franklin kitty relationship that's it has its grounding in that and then i love that you know, I don't know if it was if it was Davis, if it was Lobdell, if it was Joe Mad that made the point of having her hug Rogue, just because that's a relationship not a lot of people think about. But like they were, they spent a lot of time together in that John Romita Jr. era, and I loved that they made a point of having the two of them hugging. Because yeah, and like you said, this is the first time Excalibur has met X Men ever. Like in person on page like after all of those teases and feints and off-panel stuff yeah. that they've done the little guess you know we had psylocke a few issues yeah. ago and psylocke was their last issue yeah which is weird by the way psylocke visited for two issues i guess went home and came right back she back. did based on where this all takes place i talked about this where it all takes place she had to have gone home in order to be flying back to england yes. this yeah. issue on the plane so she it's went home but bizarre. she was here last issue <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the one, we can get more into the character stuff, but I, Kurt and Logan make no sense to me in these two issues because this is after the Marvel Comics Presents story in which they have a very moving, very slashy mm-hmm. reunion and that they barely have words for each other in 57 mm-hmm. or 58. And I'm like, that's a little bit weird. I have to like fan fiction my brain to make that work. Like, why are they suddenly avoiding each other after they rode that horse together so romantically in that previous <laughs> team up? But, are you assuming yeah. that something that something happened off page that they're not really ready to deal with yet? Like I don't know. I don't know. I'm just throwing it there, out there. And it is um I mean there is a there is a footnote caption that basically acknowledges, oh, Wolverine mm-hmm. and Kurt have seen each other in this Marvel Comics Presents story. So Davis isn't ignoring it. He just, you know, maybe they just don't want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Things got weird. Things got weird, okay? You know, sometimes it takes a while to like <laughs> I know, I know. Well, I mean, it relates to kind of, you know, the Scott-Kurt relationship, and <laughs> I don't know how that relationship's a little bit different, and I do want to talk about that. I, I agree that Scott's jobbed here a little bit in order to make the story make sense, and in particular Kurt. in order to make Kurt's story make sense, mm-hmm. but they've often had a little bit of an antagonistic relationship, going all the way back to the early days of Uncanny X-Men and kind of their different approaches to heroism, and then right up into kind of the modern issue, you know, era in something like the Utopia issues, where they have a major conflict about Scott's use of force, and Kurt tries to quit the team over it, and Scott guilts him into staying, and then Kurt dies. And then that's never been dealt with, because Kurt comes back from the dead and just kind of is fun-loving Kurt for a while again, and always frustrates me as a Kurt fan that that sort of never got dealt with. He was quitting the team when he died. That was kind of a big deal. But um, anyway, um, let's get into some of that character stuff because I want to talk about the contrasting identities between those two teams a little bit. But I thought we'd start off talking about Joe Mad's art. Everybody said something nice about it. I enjoy it as well. So let's talk about what it is and let's talk a little bit about his career because for me he's one of those artists that I like but I don't really understand because he's done relatively few comics and yet has a lot of name recognition so I don't know what's your kind of take on Joe Mad's career Austin I mean I don't I don't know if there's any other artist that burned as bright as hot and burned out as fast Mm. as as Joe Mad did, you know, I mean, you say maybe you know, Art Adams probably hasn't done many more issues of comics than Joe Mad has, but that spans across decades, and he's still working yeah. and possibly yeah. fewer, uh, possibly fewer, yeah. Uh, so a lot of double sized annuals and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So that's the you know, points for that. A lot of but, covers. Yep, yep. But yeah, I mean, Joe Mad was just. Uh, it's hard to understand to understate how big a deal he was when he came on the scene and when he landed Uncanny X-Men, the hottest book, ridiculously booming 
what we eventually learned was a fragile bubble of comics <laughs> uh, in the in the mid '90s. You know, biggest book, hottest artist, and he he inspired an entire generation of artists. Really, there are tons mm. of Joe Mad clones that pop up in the late '90s and early 2000s. I'm not a big manga reader. Um, just one of those cultural blind spots that I have. But I think in a lot of ways he kind of helped open the door a little bit to the sort of mainstreaming of manga into U.S. superhero comics that happens in the late 90s because he is inspired by all of uh, by that styling as much as he is Art Adams and that just explodes in the late 90s as well and I think he has at least something to do with that just due to again his sheer popularity but yeah he he did his thing and then he he always suffered from deadline issues he left Marvel he started his own company he did or his own imprint with Wildstorm Cliff cliffhanger did battle chasers which you know was a huge hit and couldn't keep up with it and then he went and uh, started working with video games and that's pretty much where he's been i think but he was also young he was so young like 19 i think when he got the uncanny x-men job and i think that's one of those things that that, that explains a lot of his deadline issues and yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people at the time, I mean, Wizard is pumping this guy up left and right, and there's these huge expectations. I mean, he's 19. I mean, how many many people at 30 want to do what they were doing when they were 19, even if when at 19 you were the biggest artist on the planet? Yeah, yeah, that's sort of a a good summary of it. I mean, if we were going to describe his style and like the appeal of his style, Andrew and Mav, do you want to take a stab at it? Uh, manga, exactly as Austin said, um, heavy into non-iconic abstraction. So a lot of stylistic distortions for metaphorical purposes, like mm-hmm. for example, Sabretooth's shoulders and arms, which are hilarious, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Angel but so cool. Um, a whole lot of that big, big eyes, big expressive faces, someone who for me, um, excels in a light fantasy setting, um, Mm -hmm. which, which is why I prefer his work on Excalibur to his work on Mm X-Men, just because I I think he's better suited to it. Uh, and and as Austin was saying, like, I I think the really cool thing about Joe Mad is we're seeing the seeds of the next aesthetic revolution in Marvel comics. We're coming out of this Jim Lee pouches and tactical military style era. Uh, and and the next thing is going to be this manga infusion. Um, and having that unfold almost at the exact same time is kind of cool. There's like a fractal pattern that I really, really like about it. Uh, and it's kind of refreshing to see someone going in a different stylistic direction than tactical military. So yeah, no, I, I think Mad's influence is absolutely enormous. Exactly. Again, as Austin was saying, which I'm going to say your, to your point about the, the light fantasy, he said that one of the reasons he left uh, Uncanny X-Men when he did was because it was just getting so dark yeah, and he yeah. didn't like how dark the yeah. stories were. Yeah, I, I was thinking about our conversation about Era Parent, and we were talking about the excesses of the 90s and sort of the difference between comic art and illustration. And, you know, do the images serve the images or do the images serve the story? And I really enjoy how the excess in, you know, Joe Mad style in general, but the story in particular, does serve the story. I mean, there is a lot of excess in terms of poses and facial expressions and stuff, but it's not something that takes me out of the story. I mean, I can see it being the kind of thing where maybe you like a more naturalistic style and the style doesn't appeal to you. But for me, it was like, I like this use of excess. Like, it works for me. Nightcrawler looks great when he draws him. I mean, he gives him so That's much, like, kineticism. Yeah. <laughs> you were going to ask if I enjoyed it or not. Yeah, I love this Nightcrawler. <laughs> I do too. I do too. And I mean, you know, like, I mean, doesn't draw him like, you know, super sexy or whatever but like that's fine with me he draws him like super athletic and awesome and like i love his version of him i think he's great do you want to say a piece about it mav what are your sort of loves about joe mad bama llama bama lou got a girl named lucinda that um... (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna just admit the entire show so you know (laughs) the character tom jones what did they expect i know um i like joe mads i like joe mads a lot i think Anna, you just start, you you sort of hit on it right there. I was thinking about when we were doing Air Apparent, and I talked about the the advent of what became the image style was really, it was all about the thin lines, which was really more than anything. It was, you know, a reaction to changes in printing technology, making this possible in a way that it wasn't before. And I think that Joe Mad and Art Adams sort of get lumped in with the Lees and the Liefelds. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think that's fair. I am actually, so I'm going to make this clear. I'm a Jim Lee fan, and there are things about Rob Liefeld that I appreciate. 
I think Todd McFarlane is a generational talent, actually. My problem with McFarlane was always that McFarlane's style works very much on one particular kind of book. He's perfect for Spawn, <laughs> and it works not at all for anything else because everything looks horrific in a good way, right? Like, I mean, he he excels at horror. What Joe Mad did even better than Art Adams. Art Adams was funny and cute, but he could all, he could. There was like there were horror elements. Like if you look at um, Asgardian War, something that Andrew and I have both pointed to so, uh, a yeah. bunch. One of my favorite books because yeah. of the Art Adams Same work. Here. There are funny bits, like there's horrific bits, mm -hmm. like that Ilyana thing, mm -hmm. but there's so much humor in it, visual humor. And Joe Mad is seeing that in Art Adams, and he's moving towards what would become Battle Chasers. That's where the, the manga influence comes. Now, I actually wasn't a Battle Chasers fan, but I appreciate what he's doing. Jim Lee is a technical illustrator. He, you know, he wants to be a draftsman. And Joe takes a lot of what that is and then kind of uses it for an expressiveness that is entirely unique to him. What Liefeld did, because uh, Liefeld was never really doing, he was never really doing reality. He got tagged with that, but really the hyper -real reality of what Cable is, is actually really interesting when when um, when somebody like Liefeld does it because he's saying, "Look, if this guy's going to use a gun, he's going to use a gun like you've never seen before." <laughs> and, that, and that's and that's but that's intentional, right? It's not right, just Liefeld right. not knowing he how to think do. Guns look like that. He's right. making a choice to depict them that yes. way. And Joe Mad takes that, but infuses it with an intentionality and humor that you know he can draw technical things. He chooses not to sometimes for comedic expression, not just expressiveness, but comedic expression. When Megan finally succumbs to the alchemy um, and turns into gold, Kurt's eyes get comically huge <laughs> in order to in order to show how horrific this moment is. And it's mm -hmm. all, it's it's all you know it's a funny manga esque thing. But then they're so large that it's almost silly. It's ridiculous how wide his eyes open, but it gives the impression that he's going for of horror in a way that like the fact that he draws Jubilee with sunglasses bigger than her face. Like like it's little touches like this that go beyond what Adams does and make him a very definitive, expressive artist. And I think that I think you guys are right that this is opening up what you know what's going to be the manga infusion but it's not quite the way manga does it. it it is something that's uniquely him and it's not as polished on this issue as it will be on some of his later work like there's yeah he's, i see a lot of tension here where he's still mm -hmm. trying to do his own he wants to do his own thing but he is also still very much trying to be art adams like there it, it, it's like so intentional but i like where he's going and i i like it as a new thing so I remember reading this and, you know, hey, it's not Alan Davis. I hate that. Oh, wait, this guy, there's something here. This is interesting. So, like, that's mm -hmm. what I remember from the first time I read yeah, it. Yeah, there's and very much a, like, if you're not going to have Alan Davis, this is this is better than most of the not Alan Davis issues around this period of time. And he's yeah, not trying sure. to be Alan Davis. He's not trying right. to be Alan at all. This is right. very different than what Davis does, which makes it interesting. Yeah, definitely. In terms of art, it's been my favorite fill-in issue, for sure. I mean, these two issues, this little story arc. Yeah, I think that like intentionality of excess really kind of sums it up for me, because that works really well for me throughout this issue. And I know it helps sort of Kurt's story go down hard for me in this issue, too. I mean, exactly like you said, that scene where he's, you know, comically horrified by Megan, but also actually horrified because the excess is the way that right. it is. It's actually effective, right? Because even though it's not realistic, it is very effective the way cartoons can be and then some of the later stuff where he's got his like face all in shadows and blacked out and even the way that he does design the character he d draws Kurt very kind of slight and young looking sort of like monstrous mm -hmm. too with like elements of monstrosity that I actually find really interesting because full disclosure I think some people draw Nightcrawler too attractive and I think it's a I problem Davis that does. Davis sometimes falls into yeah mm -hmm. I, I mm -hmm. agree and that's part of why yeah. I find this, this version is... of the character interesting but um Joe but Mads... yeah like I mean that that cartoonishness like speaks to character like in this particular mm -hmm. case yeah i was gonna say joe joe mad's version of kurt is a demon mm -hmm. in a way that uh in a way that davis's davis's kurt is not uh, I, I mean know, i like I davis's kurt but davis's kurt <laughs> is not a demon it's, it's hard to believe villagers are running after davis's kurt with a pitchfork yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah right <laughs>
It's like, <laughs> it's like running yeah, towards him. You're right. It, it's like, yeah, okay, you're blue, but lots of people are in this world, right? Like, it's like, right, yeah, sure, you're blue, whatever. Whereas this guy in this book, I see why he's off-putting, which, you know, like, I get why that might not be what some fans are looking for. But for the backstory of the character... Oh, okay. I understand why you are more horrific in a way than Beast is. Mm-hmm. It, 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 you know, because there is a, there is an uncanny valiness about Kurt in this that that Hank doesn't have. Oh, I got it's so funny. I I don't know if people will think it's weird that I actually really do love it, but just like I don't know, I want to hug him so badly in this issue. I'm just like <laughs> I actually really love this version of Kurt. Like I'm just like I love Davis's Kurt a lot too, but he's so vulnerable here, and I think having that sense of his difference is very important to the affection that we feel for the character. Like whether we just like him as a character, or whether we identify with him, and I find yeah, Joe Mads art really gets to me. I've reread these two issues like a lot of times for that reason. Is the um, art by itself? Is it, is it the art, the vulnerable part by itself, or is it the art combined with the fact that Scott just completely punks him out? Yeah, it's both. It's both. I want okay. to talk about that a little bit more specifically, and we're going to talk about that with the next issue as well, because mm-hmm. we get some more direct exchanges with Scott and Kurt in that one. But um, do we feel that the kind of respective identities of the teams are coming across here? Like, I mean, a number of the things that you brought up could factor in there. You know, the X-Men as like a slightly more militaristic, slightly more policey kind of team in some ways versus the way Excalibur operates. Like, do you see kind of a meaningful contrast between these two teams like being teased out here Austin I honestly don't I That's feel fair. like this is everyone's an everyone's an X-Men in this issue to the point that Excalibur kind of gets overshadowed in this story mm-hmm. a little bit I think it's because this is really about the reunion between X, the X-Men and the former X-Men that are on Excalibur. Now, obviously, Captain Britain and Megan don't care <laughs> as much about, they don't have the same emotional attachment and impact there. But because this is that big reunion story, it sort of pushes Nightcrawler and Kitty into that, we're the X-Men again, we're meeting up with our old friends, and they kind of... And then you toss in the fact that Cyclops was there for the first troll alchemy story and they sort of slot into this subordinate role again and that kind of washes away the distinctions a little bit yeah i don't know did anybody else have thoughts about it i mean i have some tentative thoughts about it i mean i think i want to make it work more than it does because i think about the jet and everything they're operating very officially and investigating things whereas excalibur are just traipsing through the sewer (laughs) i'm just sort of like they do seem like they come in with sort of a contrast to me like in terms of we're the real x-men you're just excalibur Mm. yeah yeah and i don't like it um i think it's too much (laughs) no and and not just okay there's two ways you could have done this right like i don't mind the contrast of showing that kurt and scott are different people andrew i know from claremont run you have you have an issue you've talked about with the fact of what scott became as the militaristic you know stick in the mud because he he's actually in claremont under claremont he's the biggest hugger you pointed out right like he's he's (laughs) much he's much more emotional than he proven by data yeah well in in this era in this era scott is an emotionless stick in the mud that's what he becomes you called him right you know the animated series scott right and i'm okay with doing that if you do it in intelligently and i'll point to i'll I'll move across the pond to the other company and say uh and you know the the other pond not the british pond um (laughs) but like if you're looking in if you're looking in dc there there is always a very clear divide that has been called out by characters like nightwing between the fact that the justice league and the teen titans are two very different teams being in the justice Mm -hmm. league is being a job being a teen titan is about being family that's what it is and even though Dick's on both teams, he approaches working with one team in a very different way. And he has called that out in the storyline. So I'd be okay with this story if Scott's trying to be militaristic because that's who they wanted to be. Whereas Kurt's like, yeah, we don't really work like that here, Scott. Like that would be okay. And that would be a story. But instead, like what we get, and it's one, one particular panel on page 29 where Scott says, negative gambit. We won't allow ourselves to be divided and conquered much the same way Excalibur was all but defeated. Those punk ass bitch losers. <laughs> like, like, like he might, and, I, and, and I might have added some words there, but I'm not sure I did because that's how I read it. Right. <laughs> like, like it really just felt 
so harsh. And I'm like, dude, you're visiting in this book, you know? And, yeah. and it just really and it and it really came across as just a low blow, particularly like there the panel before you see Kurt in the back. It's like, yeah, Nightcrawler, you uh you bring up the rear. Yeah, I guess. Oh, it's so, <laughs> so it's so the Jubilee, sad. The Jubilee and Gambit thing too. Like, thank God we got here when we did. They're gonna say something even meaner to him. <laughs> right, day. right. And it just and it just so like that it's intentional, like clearly an intentional writer writerly move, but there's no payoff. Nothing comes of it. Not <laughs> There's a little, there's some, there's more to it next issue, but like, it's yeah. not, it's not enough. It's not enough. And, and it no. doesn't, that's the one thing that doesn't work for me in this. And the cruel twist of it is that the one way in which this story to me is distinctly Excalibur is in the tone. There's a little bit of the sort of patented Excalibur whimsy, farcical. We, we take this stuff seriously, but we're not super serious about it in this story of trolls and a character named Tom Jones uh, <laughs> who transforms things uh, into various precious metals. I mean, the, that original X-Factor story from Wheezy and, and Art Adams read a lot like an Excalibur story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, it did. And, it, and so this is, and this is, as we said, almost beat for beat, the same kind of a plot. So tone-wise, yeah. So tone-wise, if they wanted to do something where like the X-Men come in guns blazing because they're the big shots and then it doesn't work because this is a different kind of adventure mission, what have you, I could see that working, but that's not what is happening here at all. <laughs> we get a bit more of that in the next issue. So it's hard because I'm trying to keep yeah, it on this yeah. issue. But anyway, Andrew, go ahead. No, I was going to say just, just, I don't know. It, it kind of works for me. I, I think, especially at the metatextual level, like this is very much, it's a cliche. It's, it's the idea of the local cops are investigating a murder and the feds show up and say this is our investigation now go get us some coffee but i I think excalibur as a franchise does have a jurisdictional problem and that's one of the reasons why they've kept the x-men away from them for so long Mm -hmm. uh who are they in contrast to the X-Men once those universes are intersecting? So I think having right. a story based around that kind of jurisdictional element makes a lot of sense to me in terms of defining what the Excalibur franchise is going to be moving forward in a unified X-Line. Do you think it's aware? Yeah, 100%. Okay, because that's my problem with it. Like, it doesn't work for me because I feel like not enough comes of it. And that's and we'll talk about it more next issue, I know, but it's just... You said like, you know, if, I, if I'm watching Law and Order, it's like the feds come in. It's like we're taking over. Right. Mm-hmm. The way the reason this works when you watch a Law and Order or a CSI or whatever cop show you're watching where the feds come in and take over is then the feds fuck it up. And then the, <laughs> and, and, and then the local cops have to go and save the day. Right. Scott comes in and says, we're taking over. And Kurt says, all right, Scott. And then, I mean, yes, there's an explosion at the end, but it mostly is kind of okay. Like, (laughs) you know, like Scott takes over and it's like, yeah, Scott's a good leader. So that was... um... (laughs) i know i know but it's not but yes i'm not saying it's bad like oh like kurt will prove himself to also be a leader but the storyline needs scott to screw things up yeah, and yeah, he yeah. will not <laughs> like it's gonna <Right>. be fine <laughs> and like like scott scott shows up and says let me show you kids how it's done and then he'll show the kids how it's done yay I, <laughs> that's I, my I problem will... with it <laughs> I'll argue in favor of the intentionality a bit to, by saying that while Scott Lobdell was writing Uncanny X-Men at this point, um, had had become the, he'd scripted over Wills Portacio's plots for a while, but had become the full writer at this point four or five months before this issue. So that you could read it as, you know, oh, the X-Men writer is is guest scripting this issue. And so he's, you know, playing up his favorites. Or, but it's not like Scott Lobdell hadn't done Excalibur issues. I mean, you guys know yeah. that this isn't your first encounter with him he was kind of the, <laughs> the uh you know the unofficial fill-in writer mm-hmm. for excalibur for a long time mm-hmm. so David's i mean not at this i mean it's not like right this is just right just so, bell this is David's right story right too. so there is a home field advantage i guess on both sides of the equation it could just be that scallop dell's not that good of a writer i say that <laughs> putting aside all other concerns with Scott Lobdell that we've learned in the years since. I'm not a Lobdell hater. Uh, he's written some very good issues of some comics that I treasure dearly, but he's also just generally, I don't know that he's as sharp as someone like Davis. 
or I mean, obviously Claremont. <laughs> but, but he only know. scripted it. This is not, and this is not. My problems That's are true. not with the script. The, That's the plot well, has this problem too. I, I wonder how much of. I wonder if the the some of the Cyclops Nightcrawler stuff. How much of that came from Davis, and how much of that was the Fair. script? I know, yeah, I don't know. That's the big question mark for me because so much of it comes from that interaction, that feeling of the of the Feds coming in and taking over is is in that exchange and. It's hard for me because I think that the character work with Nightcrawler is really good, but I do think that that character work comes at the expense of other characters. On that level, I totally agree. It's a very deliberate story in a lot of ways, but I mean, in terms of the long form character development of Nightcrawler, I mean, I am so mad now about that there isn't any explicit callback to the Morlock sewers because it's kind of like totally running <laughs> it for me. But, <laughs> but like, because it makes so much sense in terms of, you know, Scott wasn't directly involved with that. But I mean, you know, the last time, you know, Scott and Kurt worked together was back in the X Men days, and Kurt was a very different person then than he is now. And so and Lobdell just yeah. finished doing an X-Men story about the Morlocks yeah, yeah. that called back <laughs> Mutant Massacre like three different times. Mm-hmm. It was right there at the tip of his tongue and he missed it. Sorry, mm-hmm. continue. <laughs> no, 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 I know. But like, yeah, in terms of that kind of leadership arc that Kurt's been on, right, that has been threaded through Excalibur for some time now. There's a lot of character beats here that are good. And I mean, the identifiableness of, well, I mean, a couple of things, like just in terms of that character journey, the struggle for Kurt as a leader is the emotional empathy stuff. I mean, that's what makes him good at people mm-hmm. managing in some ways. Mm-hmm. And yet we see that coming back to bite him here with his reaction to Megan. I mean, anybody might react that way, but it's very, made very intentional that Kurt doesn't look away and forces himself to watch this because he wants to feel all the guilt of his own failure. <laughs> it's like that's a particular <laughs> approach to things that, you know, other characters might take as well, but it fits with Nightcrawler being an empathetic character and that being the tremendous toll that leadership ends up taking on him. He doesn't even fail here. I mean, the fact that he th- that's there, that's good writing. The fact that he takes that failure on himself, he's done nothing wrong here. They were in a fight and, you know, the person that she was fighting caused her to, I mean, like, they don't know what they're up against. And uh, Kurt's no more responsible for Megan turning the gold here than he is for Brian. That's just the power of the person they're fighting. So, like, there was literally nothing he could do. But it makes sense for who he is as a leader for him to take that on upon himself. So I'm fine with that like that that's good storytelling it's even good storytelling oh thank god scott's here i guess he's the real leader like i can see kurt doing that right like i can see kurt just like going i will never be what cyclops is i and and he would have done the same thing at storm showed up and he or or xavier like i can see that i can see that happening my problem with it is not in kurt's reaction it's in digetically what the rest of the world does around it like it's missing a beat it's missing a beat where the story tells me actually he's not that bad like i have to invent that myself and that's kind of my problem (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i'd like i yeah i definitely i don't think i quite agree because for me as a deep reader of that character i just it really works for me in terms of the journey that he's been on Mm -hmm. having contact with scott again you know somebody that he did have conflict with back in the uncanny x days and you know sometimes you know stood up to scott sometimes told scott he was full of shit and you know that's seeing him sort of slide back into a subservient role here i mean speaks to his own doubts about himself Mm -hmm. but it's also very just human you know it's like I, i love that it's like being an adult child and seeing your parents again and then falling back into an infantile role because that's the nature Mm -hmm. of your relationship right and Mm -hmm. i just feel that so much here or like an older sibling that you haven't seen for a long time right yeah yeah and then so because i think what's good about it is that his failures aren't tactical failures they're emotional failures and that's can be a very effective character journey to talk about that you know like what's involved with leadership you know what types of confidence are involved you know what types of actions are involved what types of character relationships are involved what types of being a person are involved and i think that this story opens up possibility to do that i'm not saying it's the absolute most profound story that's ever existed on that level but god i find it deeply deeply like uncomfortable but like in an identifiable and i think very successful way the way kurt falls back into 
into that role and kind of let Scott take charge. And I don't know just how sad he is like in those like, and I mean, the Joe Mad art really sells it too. If it was different art, if we had a different rendition of him as a character, if he didn't seem so vulnerable, if he didn't do the very deliberate, you know, placing Kurt in the background with the shaded out face so that like, I'm really feeling the dark cloud hanging over him as he sees himself falling back into the subservient role and knows that he isn't that person anymore, but doesn't know how to interact with these people in another way. I really like that in these two issues and it works for me. It works for me. Yeah, I think there's a a cool contrast there. I, I agree with everything you're saying. The idea of Kurt's emotional intelligence as an advantage as a leader we've talked about. Um, but the other side of that is he needs to be able to turn those emotions off at times mm-hmm, in order to be mm-hmm. an effective leader. And seeing him, you know, lose his mind a little bit uh, and go off in a dangerous way as an emotional reaction to Megan, that contrasts really effectively with the, the stiff Cyclops that we see in this issue. Like, I, like I don't want to credit that too much. Um, but but yeah, Cyclops will do the tactical thing, right? he'll he'll turn off emotions in the moment. Um, and that's part of what makes him a good leader. So I think there's, again, a really nice foil effect there. Cyclops knows that he has to sacrifice his team sometimes. Like that's, <laughs> I mean, that's that's the defining aspect of him, right? Like he, yeah. you know, he's, you know, he'll lead the mission that where he knows people are going to die if it has to be that way. He doesn't want to, but he will. Kurt doesn't know how to do that. And that's what makes them interesting. I think Anna's right. I think the story's there. I want the story. And I know that this is weird, but if to have me say this, I want the story to spell it out in a way that I don't, you know, like I don't think a story always needs to. I think this story needs to because it feels too under, like you call it a a deep reading, Anna. I don't want to have to deep read in order to have Kurt have (laughs) agency in his own book. You know, like I want want some acknowledgement. He's the star of this book. Cyclops is a guest. And like that that bugs me because I feel like Cyclops has the full story. And I feel like Kurt, I have to read between the lines. And it's weird. Particularly (laughs) as we move forward, they're going to be moving. You know, we've just talked about as we move forward these stories are going to be moving closer together like austin said right like it's going to be we're going to we're going to see more and more x-men as time goes on not less yeah mm-hmm. i mean yeah the, that's for sure the, the one thing i would just well we're going to talk again more about the contrast between kurt and scott a little bit in the next issue where it really comes to the fore because we see kurt taking some certain actions that anyway but i i, I liked what you were saying about scott because scott would totally sacrifice his team if they had the powers that they needed for like a particular mission or something kurt even if he wasn't the right person for that mission would sacrifice himself yes like rather than move. send somebody else and that's why he's a bad leader a lot of the time even if and, it's and, even yeah. if it's the wrong thing to do like kurt mm-hmm. would sacrifice mm-hmm. himself even if he's even if there's a better person yeah yep. like if there's a person who might who might survive kurt would still super stupidly yep. sacrifice mm-hmm. himself that's a yes. problem <laughs> yes <laughs> I agree. I agree. We're on the same page there. (laughs) One of the questions I wanted to ask, and maybe this can be part of our final thoughts, is why is Kitty able to step right back in with the team, whereas Kurt does have so much trouble? Do we find that contrast intentional? What do you think, Austin? Intentional is a loaded word. I think it's Lobdell is trying to, or Davis, they shouldn't, they did, they're both there. They're trying to do something with Kurt. And Cyclops and this whole, Mm -hmm. and so I feel like it's just a little bit a matter of, from an Excalibur perspective, this is Kurt's issue. This is his arc, his cross to bear, so to speak. So with Kitty, it's just give her the the happy-go-lucky emotional moment, hug her old friend. She's happy to see everybody and then get her out of the way so that we can do this stuff with Nightcrawler. Because it's really, from an Excalibur perspective, it's it's his story. And next issue really underscores just how much this is a Nightcrawler featuring Excalibur kind of thing. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. And I mean, I, you know, I'll throw a bone to Scott Lobdell. I usually like Lobdell's writing of Nightcrawler. He's done some good things with him. He's like done some stories with him that I've enjoyed. His writing of women, not so much, and that will come to right. a head a little bit in the next issue. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but, um, Andrew, what do you think? Do you think there's an intentionality of the way Kitty is characterized here? Yeah, I think it speaks to her character. I think it also speaks especially to Kurt in that he would have a sense of territoriality. This is a character who's been at odds with Cyclops since literally issue 99 of uncanny x-men stop being like, it's introduced early I would literally rather die scott <laughs> yeah exactly canonical so, so interaction between them 
<laughs> uh, and I don't think Kitty has something to prove. I, I think Kitty's yeah, a, doesn't yeah. really see those boundaries or borders. And I think that's one of the charming elements of her character that she is so open like that. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas Kurt has undergone a lot of character growth and development over the course of Excalibur, taking him away from who he was in Uncanny X-Men. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it actually speaks really nicely to how those characters have different relationships to their, their former teams slash lives. I was of two minds about it, but I'm more on your side of it, Andrew. I did find it kind of convincing because she doesn't have that same sense of, she doesn't have that same chip on their shoulder that like Kurt does. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes sense to me that she would be less troubled by this interaction mm-hmm. than he was. But um, did you have thoughts about it, Mab, before we move yeah, to final thoughts? I th- so I like it. Um, I, this is one of the things where I, where I think works really well in this issue because at least at this point in their lives, Kitty and Kurt are very different people and Kitty wouldn't have that chip on her shoulder because to the extent that she does and you know I, I like I think Kitty's a complicated character I've talked about like one of the things that I love about Kitty is how dismissive she can be of the new mutants um, even Ilyana you know, <laughs> she, she, she can be like super bitchy towards them sometimes and I, which I love about her but Kitty has just spent the last guess two years since the um since you know inferno I, not since inferno since, oh um, let's let's fall, not do years I'm like, <laughs> some, some amount of some amount of time thinking that her family is dead and for the person that kitty pride was at this point in continuity nothing else matters i just got to see my family again they're alive so like uh right. where, where kurt might have some issues of resentment and feelings uh, the fact that i get to see logan and kitty hug like i absolutely believe that kitty pride who idolized this little 200 year old man since she was 13 right <laughs> like she like they were best friends mm-hmm. among you know uh, uh, the way right. i read x-men like the relationship between kitty you know pre-jubilee the relationship between kitty and Logan from the very beginning where, you know, she's got a relationship with storm. That's motherly. She's got a relationship with Peter. That is like, even 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 but regardless she's got she's got a crush on him right like there's there's a a romantic thing there even with kurt it becomes like a big brother little sister thing wolverine is oddly enough just her friend she is best friends with this murderous little dude and like that's cool for her like he's a he's a psychopath but he loves her and she loves him in a completely platonic way that i absolutely believe the I thought I would never see you again. Come here, bub, and I'm gonna hug you. And then the same thing when she when she sees Rogue. Like, uh, like mm-hmm. it makes sense to me that like nothing else matters. Like I think about things that that are big moments in in Kitty's life that we've talked about on this show when they're on the cross time caper and she kills someone and it's like not a thing because in my head that moment happened and she's just like okay I'm just going to be the Wolverine here and I'm going to kill people because she learned this by being raised by this psychopathic 200 year old year old man right like that's that's where that relationship where that relationship happens in the Kitty Pride Wolverine miniseries like I see so much of that in this one panel in this book that I think Hmm. makes that work. To me, it makes perfect sense for this 16 year old girl to just like let, you know, bygones be bygones, my family's alive in a way that Kurt can't. Like Kurt has issues dealing with, okay, they're alive. So what does this mean for me now? Kitty doesn't care they're alive i think that's a big difference yeah i anyway we have the other episode about the logan kurt reunion yeah. so i won't talk about that <laughs> yeah. again here but but um yeah well, but, just yeah this is just what's in this issue yeah, yeah <laughs> understand sure. understandable that it's different in other ways yeah yeah all right let's do some quick hit final thoughts before we leave this one behind um i'll start with you andrew anything that you wanted to talk about that you didn't but we didn't get a chance to touch on uh yeah just briefly the the framing mechanism of this story is actually the same as warlord oh. Yeah, oh, we didn't right. even talk about it. Yeah, this is actually the story is being told by Jester oh. of Crazy Gang. Yeah. Oh, we don't know that yet. Yes, but yes, we know it's being told. It's being told by someone. Someone with a weird, funny head. Very Jester. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I really like that. I thought the best moment of that is when Jester is narrating what he envisions as the dialogue that Excalibur <laughs> would be saying in a fight. Mm-hmm. That was cute. I enjoyed that. <laughs> How about you, Mav? A final thought for us? Um, yeah, alchemy. <laughs> 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 Which we, we haven't really talked about, like, 
This is a character that was invented by a fan for a contest mm. to be in New Mutants. And then, like, they just kind of forgot. So, like, two years go by and they're like, okay, I guess we'll we'll do him in X Factor. And then he's, so he's in that one appearance in issue 41 and 42. And then they forget about him again. And it's just like, oh, let's do him again. Like, it, like he is such a weird Literally character. again. Exactly again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, the character of Alchemy is just like just the history of what he even is like it was literally a contest of hey have your character featured in a marvel comic and you know we'll just retain the rights to him you know that's what you win and they did (laughs) (laughs) you win the right to give us intellectual property I think he's currently dead, but like in the Krakoa era, who knows? Like he's only shown up like three or four times ever. It's a weird thing. And I was just like, oh, Alchemy's in this. I like, because I remember when the contest happened. So like every time I, I read this, I'm going, oh yeah, that contest. I, I was going to enter that. And I never did because like, oh. I'm lazy. I didn't mention it earlier. So I'm glad that you mentioned it. All right. Just as an important footnote, Alchemy dies fighting a cloud. Does he? Yeah, I can remember <laughs> Yeah, Death I of X. Death of X. Yeah, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think I read it, but I looked it up for the episode. But um, but yeah, I I didn't have a good final thought. Although I'm gonna do a minor criticism of Joe Mad's art, which is that I like the pose that Brian gets stuck in when he turns into a statue. It's a very kind of goofy pose, but then he draws it three separate times, and it's not the same pose in all three <laughs> pictures. And I just kept staring at it, and it bothered me. I was like, wait, that's not how his leg is. And and I'm like, oh, he needed like a statue to map that out because it wasn't quite right. And it well, they're alive. Threw maybe me he's off. moving very, very maybe. slowly. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> moving slower than the eye could follow, like tracks. <laughs> I can't draw, so who am I to throw stones? Um, <laughs> Austin, any any final thoughts from you before we leave the issue behind? Um, I'll just stick up for my boy Cyclops a little mm, bit. I Not. Know. Not that he's in the right here, but just that I hate how in the wrong he is. I don't like when they do this to Cyclops. Yeah. When when it's animated series Cyclops, when they make him this this commandeering dick like this. That's not yeah. my Cyclops. That's one of the things I've never liked about this issue. Is in the same. I I'm just coming at it from the other side of things, where it's out of character for Cyclops it as is. much as yeah. everything else. That is totally fair, and I know we've got a fan of Scott coming on for the next issue, and we're going to talk a little bit more about him there. So we'll try to give him his due there because i am not a cyclops hater although he is not a character who is central to my heart i think he's a very interesting and rich character and i have a great deal of respect for him on that level i actually like cyclops a lot i (laughs) I love him as a character i do yeah i think i think he's great i think he's one i think he's probably one of my favorite x-men flaws and all i think he makes yeah yeah yeah. Most, mm-hmm. most, um, so so this is, i agree this is one. this is like i said it's they're captain american him mm-hmm. but even but when written correctly captain america is not like this either right captain america, i like captain, captain america Act. when he's written well too yeah and that's yeah, it. Yeah. And, and this is not this is this is the the cartoonish version of cyclops where he's just like hello fellow citizen you know that, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. yeah 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 I completely agree that he is jobbed for the sake of making Nightcrawler's story make sense here. I'm going to headcanon it as this is Kurt's perception of how he's behaving, and maybe it's not entirely accurate of his behavior. Or Jester's Jester, perception of yeah, how he's true. behaving. That's this is true. Jester's telling of the story. Yeah. Unreliable narrator. There we go. There you go. Fixes everything. Such a useful literary device that way. I'm going to spotlight a letter from the Sword Strokes letters page real quick from Ian Watson in um, Barnsley, Yorkshire. Dear Mr. Davis, it took me years to find a woman who wouldn't just let me read comics in bed, but who would let me read them to her. Then I found such a rare and angelic (laughs) paragon. I married her at once. Um, This is a long letter, so I'm not going to read all of it. I know that comics have a much larger male audience than a female one. I've noticed that my wife is far more interested in some comics than others. She regularly reads Avengers, Captain America, The Hulk, and Excalibur. Why? Sal really enjoys the characters in Excalibur, especially Megan's innocent delight at the world the rest of us take for granted. I back Captain Britain all the way, because a lifetime of comic reading has taught me that a big, strong, handsome chappy trying so hard to be a hero must be okay. Sal thinks he's a boorish pig and advises (laughs) Megan to go off with that sexy, sensitive nightcrawler. (laughs) 
<laughs> now, I believe that the future of the comics industry can only be improved by attracting more women readers and more women creators. The key lies not in catering specifically to women. Don't rush the return to Millie the model, but providing high quality stories, which rely on intelligent use of character narration style and plot development instead of mindless fighting and two-dimensional gimmick characters. Stories which appeal to the mind and spirit as well as the ego and the glands. I mean, there's nothing wrong with appealing to the glands, but you know, whatever. Excalibur with its strong but diverse female cast is at the forefront of such publications. Well done. Please do keep striving to present quality work which deals fairly with all the cast, be they male, female, or dimension-hopping robot, portraying them as... which. It's interesting as a reference to widget, but anyway, um, portraying them as all well-rounded individuals and not stereotyped ciphers. Keep up the good work, Alan. My marriage depends on it. <laughs> it's not unusual to be loved by anyone. <laughs> it's not unusual. I like Millie the model. Just <laughs> I don't slander at Millie the model. Why slander Millie the model? What'd she do? <laughs> Some gender essentialism in that letter, but lots of it that I found very enjoyable as well. My pride broke it. My rage broke it. This excellent knight, who fought with fairness and grace, was meant to win. I used Excalibur to change that verdict. I've lost, for all time, the ancient sword of my fathers, whose power was meant to unite all men, not to serve the vanity of a single man. All right, I think we will wrap things up there, other than to say, Austin, thank you from the bottom of our trollish hearts for joining us. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners about what you get up to. If you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And what writing or podcasts or other projects of yours should they be checking out? Oh, well, thanks again for having me. It was uh, an absolute pleasure. And uh, if you would like to find me online, you can find me on Twitter at Austin Gorton. Um, all of my X-Men reviews are at therealgentlemanofleisure.com. Um, you can find most of the links to my other writing around the internet, ComicsXF and Comic Book Herald and all that. From Twitter, I'm pretty good about tweeting out links to all that sort of stuff. So that's kind of the one-stop shop. If you like my writing, I have a Patreon for The Real Gentleman of Leisure where you will get access to um, an extra set of reviews. Right now, I am alternating between the classic X-Men backup stories by Claremont and Bolton and the third season of the aforementioned X-Men animated series, just finishing up with the Dark Phoenix adaptation right now. And then if you like the sound of my voice and would like to hear it more (laughs) often, I have a podcast, a very special episode. Podcast.com is our website. It's a very special episode. Me and two friends get together and talk about very special episodes of TV. So, you know, those episodes where the characters learn an important lesson and the twinkly music mm-hmm, comes on and mm-hmm. sometimes there's a guest star and uh, there's usually a atonal discussion of a serious topic in a wacky sitcom and we discuss what works and what doesn't and how goofy it is and all that fun stuff. So you can find that wherever you can find podcasts, a very special episode podcast. I love that. That's such a good topic for a podcast. Thanks. Yeah, we started out with Saved by the Bell Reviewed. Uh, We reviewed every episode of Saved by the Bell. That's out there, too. If you're Saved by the Bell, Stan, and you want to listen to us talk about every episode of Saved by the Bell, that's sbtbreviewed.com. But that led us to a very special episode. Awesome. I love it. Thank you so much again, Austin. Absolutely. Anytime. Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing Excalibur number 58, Troll Call, featuring more trolls, more Remy and Jews being dicks to my fave, and more gold. (laughs) In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Box Popcast YouTube channel. Our website hasn't been up to date in ages, but now that my term is over, I am finally going to get that done this week. The Box Club YouTube channel has the same problem because I'm like way i'm so far behind and, I, and i'm sorry to everybody who enjoys watching them i'm, <laughs> I'm so sorry <laughs> it's been such a long time <laughs> really as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and Matt, for another golden conversation thank you austin for guiding us through the sewers thank you all 
all for listening and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for a truly epic theme song. Play us out. Thank you so much, everybody. I want to be on a very special episode more than anything. I, I love I, I, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, and, and it's not-